Last week I came home from work and my five-year-old son, Wit said, Dad, guess what? I said, what? He said, I became a Christian. I believe Jesus died for my sins and I went poop all by myself. <laughs> How about that? Uh-huh. Later, we were talking about it in the car, and, um, and I, you know, I don't know how much a five-year-old understands about faith in Christ, but he was able to articulate to me that, I'm, that he believes Jesus is the one and only God, that Jesus died on the cross for his sins, that he was raised on the third day because he's the one and only God, and I thought, that's pretty good, pretty simple, but true, and faith in Christ really is that simple, but what God did to make it that simple for you and me that is absolutely incredible. It's humanly impossible. You know, God's been silent for 400 years and we open to the book of Acts and, you know, there's been no prophet, there's been no divine acts, there's been no miraculous signs, nothing for 400 years. We open to the first chapter of the book of, of Luke. I said Acts, it's actually Luke. We open to that chapter and we see in the first chapter that the angel Gabriel makes two appearance in a period of six months. The angel of the Lord shows up in a profound way and first shows up to Zacharias. We remember this. He shows up to the priest Zacharias and he shares with Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to a son, his older and barren wife Elizabeth. And if that isn't a miracle enough, that she's going to give birth to a son named John who will be like the great prophet Elijah and who will go before and prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And then Gabriel shows up to Mary, right? This very young woman named Mary, a virgin. And he says to Mary that the spirit of God is gonna come upon you. His presence is gonna come upon you in such a way that you will conceive and you too will give birth. And the name of your son will be Jesus. And he is the son of God. He is the promised one, the Messiah. And then we open to our text today, and it's really interesting because Luke interrupts this narrative account, and he interrupts this account so that we might peer just for a moment into the minds and hearts of these two women, Elizabeth and Mary. And if we understand Luke's purpose in writing the gospel of Luke, if we understand his purpose in writing this gospel account, we see this as a very significant interruption meant to emphasize the importance of what Elizabeth says and what Mary sings about the miraculous work of God in their own lives. You see, Luke shares with us a very important purpose. And it's not just that he might describe the events that took place. It's that you and I might understand the magnitude of them, okay? So open your Bible to Luke chapter 1, verse 39. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. We are going to take some time, walk through this text. I'll, I'll share some comments, just make some comments kind of as we go. Then we'll step back from it and we'll make some observations about Mary and her remarkable faith. Okay, Pick it up in verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah. She entered the house of Zacharias and she greeted Elizabeth. Now remember, the angel has just departed from Mary. And when the angel departs, it's as if Mary and is as Mary leaves immediately from departure with the angel. She leaves on what was a three or four day journey, a 75 or 85, 80, 80 mile journey and hurried to see her cousin Elizabeth. Why? 
Well, back in verse 36, the angel Gabriel tells us why he had told Mary that God was at work in the life of Elizabeth as well. It says it this way, she who was called barren in her old age is now in her sixth month with child. And Mary, who believed God's word in her own life, was going to see evidence of God's word in the life of her cousin. You see, a trip to see Elizabeth was a trip to process all that God was doing in Mary and a trip to confirm what God was doing in the life of another. So she left quickly. She hurried to see Elizabeth. She greets Elizabeth, and we pick it up in verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me, would enter my house? For behold, when the sound of your greeting, when you first entered the door, when that sound reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she, blessed are you, Mary, because you believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to you by the Lord. Can you imagine the shock on Mary's face? She enters the room, she greets Elizabeth, she hugs her, and she sets off all sorts of fireworks, doesn't she? Beginning with this baby in Elizabeth's womb. Before Elizabeth could even return the greeting, before she could even speak, the baby leaped within her. Now, only a, a mother can relate to the sensation described here. The word that's used for leaped is a word that's used actually to describe an animal skipping or jumping in a field. This is much different than a baby kicking or turning in a mother's stomach, which is more common to pregnancy, right? This baby jumped at the sound of Mary's voice. Well, why? Because... Elizabeth's baby was what? He was a prophet. He actually the greatest prophet who ever lived, and this is his first prophecy. In Luke 1.13, it says his name will be John. Luke 1.15, he says, John, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in her womb. Luke 1.17 says that John will be the forerunner for Jesus Christ. He will go and prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And the Messiah has just entered the room. And John the Baptist's ministry begins three months before his birth by announcing the Messiah's presence. So John leaps because his purpose is to prepare the way for Jesus. And he leaps, verse 44, because he was overcome with joy and delight. He was overcome with joy. And we can't miss this because John, who has yet to see the light of the world, right? He's three months prior to birth. And at six months pregnancy, this fetus was probably between nine and 10 inches long. It was probably weighed about a pound and a half. And this fetus, John, filled with the Holy Spirit in his mom's womb, had the emotional capacity. Are you getting this? He had the emotional capacity and experienced an overwhelming sense of joy in the presence of the Son of God. Tell me that doesn't break 400 years of silence. It's incredible. And when John jumped, Elizabeth shouted. And because the baby in her womb had just delivered a very powerful message to her. In fact, it was his first message as the last Old Testament prophet. 
Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit of God. The presence of God comes upon her in such a way that she knows for sure that Mary is the mother of the Messiah. And she too is filled with joy that such that she responds. She shouts words of encouragement, words of blessing over Mary and her son. Blessed are you among all women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. I love the humility and reverence in her voice when she says this. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Those words, my Lord, are actually a reference to Psalm 110. David uses those words. King David refers to the coming Messiah as my Lord. Now, Elizabeth uses again when she recognizes Mary's child to be the Messiah. She's the first to confess her faith in him as Lord. She knew that this unborn baby was her salvation. She placed her belief and her hope and her trust in him. And in that one statement, she confirmed all of what Gabriel had told Mary just four days before, didn't she? What an encouragement it must have been to Mary. This older woman, a faithful follower of Christ, the wife of a devout priest, a, a mentor, no doubt, in her life, says, blessed is she who believed. Blessed are you, Mary, because you believed that God would do what he said he would do. And because you believed, I'm blessed. And because you believed, all of humanity has been blessed by the fruit of your womb. And I just had this thought, you know, it's a question for us. Have you taken the time lately to thank someone for their belief in God? Have you taken the time to encourage someone for their belief in God? Maybe their belief has been an encouragement to you. You've seen the way that God's working in their life and it's been an encouragement to you. Have you taken the time, taken your turn to just say, hey, your belief has been an encouragement to me? The last couple of days, I have been very distracted and discouraged. It's uh, just a part of me, my emotional journey. It, it goes up and down some and kind of battle some demons, the fear of men pleasing others. And that's just had me just weighted down the last couple of days. And, but you know, I was leaving here last night and somebody pulled their car over as I was walking across the parking lot and shared a word of encouragement, just sincere, heartfelt word of encouragement. And it just sort of anchored my soul not in me, but in Christ. It just anchored my confidence in God's word that God's good hand is still true in my life no matter what I'm feeling in that moment. What an encouragement. Man, I needed it. Certainly Mary needed it. Probably all of us need a word of encouragement from time to time. Elizabeth finished and Mary, who believed God at his word, who had surrendered herself to his will, whose faith had been reassured by the Spirit of God through the words of Elizabeth, she's overcome. She's so overcome with, with the grace and favor of God's plan for her life that she just pours out worship, doesn't she? You probably know this. Mary's song is called the Magnificat. It comes from the first line of her song in verse 46. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. Other translations read, my soul magnifies the Lord. And it's from the Latin word for magnify that we get the title magnificat. The word means to enlarge. In fact, Mary's view of God has been so enlarged that she can't help but declare how big and how great he is in her life. Her song's broken down into four sections. The first four verses are words of gratitude. 
Mary's worship for what God's been doing in her life. And we pick it up in verse 46. Mary said, my soul exalts, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Now, there's no real distinction here between soul and spirit, so don't read that into it. Both refer to the core of who she is. From the essence of my being, with all that I am, I magnify the Lord. I rejoice in God, my Savior. And by referencing God as her Savior, Mary acknowledges her condition as a sinner. Do you see that? Only a sinner needs a Savior. She rejoices in God, my Savior. She recognizes that she is not sinless, but sinful, and her condition warrants the need of a Savior. Only a sinner needs a Savior. Pick it up in verse 48. My soul exalts, my spirit has rejoiced for because, think because, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. This is not about me. I'm not deserving of this. This is about God. He had regard for me. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed because of the fruit of my womb. He is the mighty one. He has done great things and holy is his name. Mary says, I'm blessed not because of who I am, but because of who God is. Nothing in me deserves this. He chose me. He had regard for me. He's the mighty one. Do you see that? He is the one that's holy, that's set apart, that's righteous, that's sovereign. This is an act of his grace in my life. I have been so blessed by the unmerited favor of a merciful God. Mary has a big, huge, wide view of God. And she has a biblical, a healthy view of herself. And her worship reflects it. The second part of her song, verses 50 to 53, Mary shifts gears a little bit. She shifts from what God has done in her life to what God will do, has done, and will do in the lives of others, the lives of those around her and the lives of generations to come. So look at verse 50. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled up the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. See, Mary reminds us here that the mercy that God has demonstrated to her is available to all who revere him. In fact, he lifts up, he exalts those who are humble. He fills up, he satisfies those who hunger and thirst for his word, his scripture. It's as if Mary's saying to us, if you want to experience the mercy of God, you will indeed humble yourself before him. Why? Because his mercy stands beside his justice. His mercy stands beside his justice. And because he is both good and righteous, he cannot allow unrighteousness or evil to prevail. We might think about it this way in keeping with the character of God. For it to be salvation for those who fear him, it must then be judgment for those who don't. And Mary sings about this attribute of God as well, his justice, his righteousness, his mighty deeds, his strong arms scattering the proud. 
removing rulers, sending the rich, those who are full on themselves, away, empty-handed. Then we look at the last part of the song, this last section of three, and in it, Mary worships God for remembering his promise to her people. You see, Israel's been waiting, been dreaming about this day for more than 2,000 years. Mary understood that history. From the descendants of Abraham would come the Messiah. That day has arrived. And Mary honors God for keeping his word. Verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary's song ends, our narrative ends with verse 56, and Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. Now, when we began this series a few weeks ago, we said that Luke's purpose for writing this gospel account was so that you and I might know for sure the exact truth about Jesus Christ. Its purpose is found in Luke 1, 4, that you and I might know for sure with certainty and conviction the truth about Jesus Christ. We said then that there's a difference between knowing and knowing for sure. There's a difference between having something in our head that we think we believe and knowing with a sense of certainty and conviction that we will act upon it, right? And we ask the question, what is it that you know for sure? What is that? What are those things that you know for sure? Today, we want to ask that question of Mary. What does Mary know for sure? What does Mary know with a sense of certainty and conviction that compels her to action? Well, if we answer that question out of our text, I think we have to start here. Mary knows for sure God's word is true, and it's true for her. Mary knows for sure God's word is true, and it is absolutely true for her. She hears from an angel, she believes in her heart, and she surrenders herself completely to it. But it is actually more than that. You see, Mary's mind and heart were already saturated with the scriptures. Mary's song is patterned after Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah has asked of the Lord to be given a son and the Lord gives her a son named Samuel and she rejoices, she exalts, she magnifies the name of the Lord for the blessing that he's bestowed upon her. Mary's song's pattern after that. She knew Hannah's song. It's more than that. Every word, almost every single word in Mary's song is a biblical quotation. She quotes from at least 12 different Old Testament passages, 11 different Old Testament books. You got to understand this. Mary is almost certainly illiterate. She's a common woman from a very poor part of Israel. She grew up in a culture where the boys were uh, uh, schooled in the scriptures. The boys learned the scriptures, but the girls did not. Yet she knows her Bible. She'd heard it. She'd committed it to memory. She had meditated on it. She knows the attributes of God. She knows the promises of God. She knows what God has done throughout the history of her nation, Israel. She understands deep theological truth. And when she pulls from this storehouse of faith and devotion, it just flows off her tongue. This part will blow your mind. Mary is so confident that God's word is true. 
She's so certain that what God says will happen that in verses 51 to 55, she uses past tense verbs about the things God will do in the future. These verbs are prophetic, describing the future work of God with the certainty of a past event. And she says it this way, though this is true of God in all time, this is true about God always. He's done mighty deeds. He's scattered the proud. He's brought down rulers. He has exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry. What Mary is describing here is what God will do through Jesus Christ. Mary states the things that will occur as though they already had. Why? Because when God says he will do something, It is as good as already done. That's why. See, when God says he'll do something, it is certain. It is sure. You can bank it. It is as good as already done. That's God's word. You can count on it like it's already happened. Theologically speaking, we would say it this way. What God says he will do is considered the act itself because God's word is so powerfully efficacious. His word comes with the guarantee of fulfillment. Mary knows it. She knows for sure God's word is true, and it's true in her life. Okay, that's the first. Here's the second. Mary knows for sure the gospel will turn the world upside down. Mary knows for sure that the gospel will turn the world upside down. That's how Luke describes it in Acts 17. He says that these people, these disciples, these followers of God in the first century church are going around and they're just turning the world upside down. Turn the world upside down because of the gospel. And Mary certainly believes that. What does her song say? Everything the world values, everything culture esteems, intellect, knowledge, Social status, power, influence, the, the proud, the powerful, the rich, the full, they will be brought down. But the humble, the lowly, the poor, the hungry, the desperate, the needy, they, they actually will be lifted up. They'll be exalted. You see, the grace of God works contrary to the thoughts and the ways of the world system. And in Jesus Christ, God takes the world's standards of greatness and significance and he turns them inside out. God says, show me the proud. Those who place their trust in themselves. Those confident in their own power. Those who are satisfied by their own resources, by their money and their position and their status, they will not remain. Show me the humble those who make themselves low before me, those who recognize their need, those who hunger and thirst for my word, and they, they will be lifted up. They will be saved. The first will be last, and the last will be what? First, right? This should remind us of our discipleship series. What we tend to think is right side up is actually upside down. When I first read the second part of verse 51, which says, God scatters those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts, I was convicted at the core. You see, it's so easy for me to skate through verses like these and, and think about those who are openly arrogant and defiant, that those that, are, that I perceive at least who are far more proud than me. But those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts are inwardly prideful. They're the ones who think it, but don't say it. 
right? See, every time I look down on someone else, every time I think of myself as just this much better than the person next to me, every time I don't feel like I get what I deserve or I think I'm in control or I can do it on my own or I discount what my wife just said or I devalue my kids because I'm more important, I've demonstrated the kind of internal pride that rejects God's mercy and invites his judgment. There's no room for that in God's economy. Why? Because my sin condemns me just like everybody else. My sin condemns me just like everybody else. Even if I were to be better, which I'm not, my sin still condemns me. I can't reach God. And because nothing compares to what God has already done for us. The proud will be leveled because there are no proud. There are only those who humble themselves before me. My gospel's turning the world upside down and inside out. By the way, do you know why God judges the proud? Do you know that it is actually an act of his grace? He judges the proud as, as an act of redemption. And here's why. He brings down the proud so that they may see the folly of their ways, humble themselves before him, and be saved. That's why he scatters the proud. That they too might be saved. It's an act of his grace in keeping with his character. And then finally, Mary knows for sure that she cannot do this alone. She can't. Mary knows for sure that she cannot do this alone. She needed someone she could trust. She needed someone who would speak the truth. She needed confirmation of what she had just heard. God directs her to the humble home of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Even though Mary had believed and even though Mary had faith, she knew she could not do it alone. She needed encouragement. And she found it in a fellow believer who trusted in God's word and had experienced God's word to be true in her own life. And it's in this community, in the context of Mary's relationship with Elizabeth, that the spirit of God continues his work. He continues his work in the context of relationship to affirm with certainty and conviction what is true by his word. That happens in the context of relationship, happens in the context of community. We like to say it this way, life change, spiritual transformation, God making us more into the image of, of his son happens in the context of community by the power of the Holy Spirit over time. A community is not squeezing in here, squeezing into a chair in this room on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning. That's not community. Communities found actually in the context of deeper relationships. A smaller band of people who believe similar things, who hope similar things, and who desire to do life together. And if you don't have that, you're missing out on some of the richest part of the spiritual life. You need it. And you get it by choosing it, by moving toward it. Here at this community of faith, you sign up for discovery. You go to that class and you join a community group. And when you get plugged into a community group, you stay after it because it is not easy. It's messy and it's hard. But in time, you will develop the relationships that are deep enough to trust and to count on when you need them the most. 
you're sitting out there and you're just showing up on weekends, you're just kind of going through the motions and you're wondering why you don't sense spiritual transformation. You're not seeing life change in your life. You're wondering why you don't feel connected at this community of faith. I can almost promise you that this is it. It's because you need relationship. People who are hoping the same things and believing the same things and desire to do life together, not because it's easy, but because it's hard and because we lift each other up as we follow Jesus Christ and are encouraged by one another. It's the way the life was meant to work. It's the way Jesus designed it in the church. Mary knows for sure she cannot do it alone and neither can we. Of the two comments that my son Wet made to me the other night that he put his faith in Jesus and he went poop all by himself, it's the second that Hillary and I know for sure right now. And we know it for sure because it's what we've seen him do. He can go poop by himself. You just ask him. See, we won't know that Wit's faith is for sure until what he does matches what he says, Right? Mary says to the angel, may be done to me according to your word. She then goes and demonstrates what she believes by how she lives. She travels, she sings, she declares what she knows to be true. Her actions reflect her faith so much so that we can look at her life and say, Mary knew for sure. Same is true for us. The things we know for sure will most definitely show up in what we do. Things we know for sure will most definitely show up in how we live. We could say it this way, if it doesn't show up in your life, you don't know it for sure. And our prayer, our hope is that God's truth will penetrate our hearts with the kind of certainty and conviction that we will indeed then go act upon it. And it needs to happen in that order that we would see his truth, believe it, and then demonstrate it in our lives because we're not doing for the sake of doing like we might earn relationship with God. No, 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 that's bad theology. We're doing because of what God has already done for us. And if we believe his word to be true and we have it with certainty and conviction, then our lives will demonstrate it. We'll walk in that truth. So what? I want you to take a minute and answer this question. What is God inviting you to believe for sure right now? What is it? What is God inviting you to believe with the kind of certainty and conviction that compels you to action? Maybe it's something Mary knew for sure. Maybe it's something different. I want you to take just a minute and answer that question.